1: Hey, this is the Shotaholic reminding you that while you listen to the Talking Metal podcast, come on over and hang out with us on the Talking Metal Forum. This Sunday at eleven thirty, the Independent Film Channel presents Z-Rock, a new comedy series about three guys. The girls love it. Who are in a rock band by night too late. and a kids band by day. <laughs> Z-Rock, based on a kind of true story, with special guests Sebastian Bach, John Popper, Gilbert Gottfried, Dee Snyder, Dave Navarro. Who here has banged Carmen Electra and Joan Rivers? I'm
0: very excited. You can't tell because I had the Botox this morning.
1: Z-Rock premieres this Sunday at eleven thirty, only on IFC, the Independent Film <laughs> Channel. The best hard rock, the best heavy metal, Talking Metal, a podcast hosted by Mark Striegel and John Astronomy. Available through iTunes and most other podcast providers. Feel the power, feel the glory, TalkingMetal.com.
0: Hey guys, Mark here again. Going to get right into an interview we did with Rick Ernst, And Rat Skates. Rick is the director-producer of a great documentary called Get Thrashed that we're going to talk all about. And Rat Skates, formerly of Overkill, is actually the associate producer on the documentary. And they both stopped by the Talking Metal Studios to hang out and talk with us about their great documentary, Get Thrashed. This interview was recorded a few weeks back. Definitely pick up your copy of Get Thrashed by using those links in today's show notes. We'll have everything linked on TalkingMetal.com. And you guys got to check this out. This is I was fortunate enough to see this a while ago. I actually mentioned it on our Talking Metal on Fuse TV show. It is a really, really solid, excellent documentary, even for people who don't like metal. So be sure to get it on your Netflix. I actually recommend that you go purchase it. And again, use those show notes to get our links to... Get Thrashed, the DVD documentary by Rick Ernst and Rat Skates. Keep in touch with us by sending us an email at yahoo.com. Check out our site. We're constantly throwing updates on Talking Metal. We always have pictures for each and every podcast that we put up. There are pictures that go along with it that you can get on TalkingMetal.com. So please visit that. Support the independent film channel. Use that link. Go over to IFC.com and show them that TalkingMetal.com is sending them links. I actually am really enjoying the Z-Rock TV show that IFC currently has on on Sunday nights at 1130. So definitely tune into that also. And without further ado, here's Rick Ernst, John Astronomy, Ratskates, and myself.
2: Hey guys, welcome to a very special edition of Talking Mental. We are here with the guys from Get Thrashed, Rick yeah. Ernst, director and producer, and original founding member of Overkill Rat Skates. How
0: you guys doing?
3: Good. What's going doing on, great? John? Hey, Mark? A special edition. <laughs> Excellent. Yes.
0: So guys, thanks for joining us, and we are pretty psyched because Get Thrashed, the story of Thrash Metal, is finally about to come out on DVD, so everybody will be able to go purchase this and check it out in the comfort of their own homes, bring the true history of Thrash home with them. How did you guys first come together and come up with the idea to do kind of the definitive documentary that would trace the history of Thrash?
3: Uh, pretty much at the end of two thousand and two, I started my own production company and started you know to think about a project. you know what would be the ultimate project if I could work on this? you know i 'd have a blast doing it, and I just had to look no further than my record collection to see all my old records and say, "Of course, duh, you know you should be doing a documentary on thrash metal nobody 's ever done this before it 's something you love." And, um, you know, if I interview all these bands, number one, I'll get to meet them because I've ne- never met most of them before. And number two, even if I just sat in my room and watched this footage, I mean, I'm a fan. So that's cool. And it turned into a lot more than that. And, uh, that's really where it started really as, uh, you know, something that, uh, I was passionate about and uh, nobody had told the story of thrash metal before I wanted to do it. I thought I could do it and uh, do it justice. And it kind of took off from there. And, uh, Then about what 2004 we hooked up? Yeah,
4: Uh, actually late 2003, early 2004. And the way that happened is, consequently, I had the same idea maybe a year later that I wanted to do a documentary as an indie filmmaker on the thrash metal movement in the you know early and mid 80s as I experienced it as a musician. So um, someone who I still am friends with from back in the day, when I told him this idea, he said, "You know what? Someone's already doing this." I'm like, "You're kidding." Passed me along the, the website and everything. I saw Rick was you know well into it at that point already. He had shot uh, a decent amount of interviews. I said this looks great. If nothing else, let me get in touch with him. I have a ton of memorabilia and things from the day. Maybe I could contribute. So one thing led to another. Uh, we got together. I did an, uh, an interview. Showed him what I could do, mainly graphically. Uh, all the photo animations that you see and get thrashed are mostly mine. And uh, one thing led to another. We we teamed up. We had definitely had the same vision. For what we wanted in the end to tell that story, um, and and what the rest is history. Do I need to say that? The, the, the <laughs> funny thing is,
3: I, I'll never forget the day we first spoke on on the phone. Yeah, I was at VH1 working on a Britney Spears versus Christina Aguilera special. So in the midst <laughs> of that, here I am talking to Rat Skates and he said, "How can I help?" And I said, "I need a good lawyer." He said, "I can't do that." But you know, <laughs> After Effects and Photoshop and editing and everything else, like. You know, I can do. And um, that's kind of how we hooked up. Well, I
2: think what's really great is that you're getting it from both of the sides that we're going to want to get the story from. A fan, somebody who's been there for the, you know, from the beginning and one of the artists who was one of the founding members, not only of Overkill, but of Thrash in general. Yeah.
4: And that was really important overall in the film because you are getting uh, you're getting extreme sort of looks at what happened, and including the musicians in the film because when Rick showed me some uh, some of the rough cuts that he had at that point and there were some of the newer bands that I had heard of but I'm not really that familiar with. You know, I'm truly stuck in the 80s. What can I, what can I say? <laughs> me too. But Yeah, well, there you go. You know, we got the hair and that's all good. We'll, yeah. While we still have it, we'll keep the, the feathered David Cassidy, Keith Partridge kind of style. <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and the thing is, uh, it was very interesting hearing their perspective. I instantly felt, as we were talking about earlier, Mark, I felt old. Uh, when I heard him say, oh, yeah, you know, growing up on Overkill when I was a little kid and listening to Slayer, I'm like, wow, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, okay, I'm dated there. But it was interesting hearing their perspective because as a musician being helping to break that genre in that time period, I never got to hear how it influenced the artists of today. So that was very, very cool. You know, I was not aware that that many of the, those uh, musicians of the day had, were that influenced by it. So it was cool.
0: Now, Rick, you mentioned the Christina Aguilera uh, special you were working on at the time, but just to fill a little, uh, some of the listeners in on your history, you definitely were involved in metal programming at MTV Networks. Do you want to talk yeah, a little bit I about mean, that?
3: I. Straight out of college went to work on Headbangers Ball, the first edition of that with Ricky Rackman, and uh, you know was there towards the tail end of that, so um, that was a great experience to be there for, I guess it was a year and a half maybe before it uh, went under, and I got to see the shows that came after that, and you know, basically I've been at MTV since 1993, um, a lot of metal shows have come along and gone since then, But, um, you know, ultimately I ended up, uh, the last job I did for MTV was actually MTV2, the supervising producer of the new Headbangers Ball. So it was great to kind of walk in the door as an unpaid intern on the first one and then walk out the door as, you know, the producer on on the last version of Headbangers.
0: Yeah, so the two perfect guys, I would say, to do a documentary on Thrash. We agree. Yeah. Now, this was many years in the making, right? I mean, I remember running into you years and years ago when you had already started working on it. How, how long? I know Ian Christie has very long hair in yeah, the, docu- yes. in the <laughs> interview, and his hair is no longer that long. So how long did this actually take? When did it actually start? And when was the final completion?
3: Um, You know, late 2002 is when I kind of put pen to paper and and started putting the wheels in motion. I guess it must have been March 2003 is really when that first batch of interviews took place. So from March 2003 until September 2008, it's just over five years, and I did think it was going to take about five years to get it out on DVD. It's taking a little bit longer, um, reasons I'm sure we'll talk about uh, soon, but um, uh, five years, a little over five years in the making.
2: Now how did you get from the point where once you've had it together, you know, you got it on the big screen all
3: around the the US?
2: How did you do that?
3: You know, doing an independent film like this, it's 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 tough to kind of raise your head above all the clutter that's out there. There's a lot of really good documentaries, a lot of bad documentaries, but there's a lot of material out there. So you have to find a way to kind of kind of pop your head through the clouds there and and break break through, you know? So, um, you know, we certainly used uh, metal websites like Blattermouth and and other sites. Our site, you know, GetTheRash.com, putting clips up and whatnot to to help spread the word. But I think really one of the biggest things that helped was uh, doing the film festival run, which was about a year around the world we did film festivals. And it was amazing to go to, you know, the UK, or I don't know anybody, but you go to a screening in the UK and, you know, there's a, 150 people in the theater you know it's packed and people are screaming and they're so excited to see the movie and to see to see us to see Rat and I and that was the first kind of inkling like wow this is you know more than just you know a documentary that we did I think it's something that the fans took ownership over and as I was doing documentary you know the, the film festivals around the US and around the world that became like the running theme and that really I think helped um, spread the word you know, um, that this was a really cool film, and and, and a cult kind of film, in a way. Yeah, definitely a cult thing,
4: because the thrash metal people in general, I mean, to this day, I mean, you know, it's a very, very intense, hardcore underground devotion to that, and there were no other films, there are no other films, that are on, like, for example, uh, Sam Dunn's film, is an excellent film, and it's about metal. It casts a much wider net than ours, which is very, very targeted. Um, So, that enthusiasm of the thrash fans, knowing it's about thrash metal, I mean, for example, like in Los Angeles, you know, and, and the film's coming on and the Slayer section, there's kids, you would think that there's a concert, standing up, yelling, screaming, at this. Wow. you know, like fist banging, and there's no <laughs> music yet, just like, they're just so, so excited, psyched. yeah, I'm gonna see what I know, it's like ultimate here, and I am part of this, and so it was just a, a great...
3: Yeah, yeah. It the was film Driven. festival experience yeah. was just—it was amazing. You know, it was the first time I had seen ever anything I'd ever done on a big screen. You know, I worked at MTV and had seen stuff on TV that I would produced and directed, but this was the first time you seeing see it, it on a big game, screen, right? and it was—it was amazing. And like Rat said, you go to these different screenings, and you know, even more than uh, than the good reviews, like I've met friends that I'll have for the rest of my life from going to Texas for the first time and having people so you know so psyched to see the movie and so appreciative that we did this movie, that somebody did it, you know, and that's that's the amazing thing, you know, from people all around the world. I have friends now just through this movie and, and showing them this movie and going there and screening. One of the things
2: that I think is great is that you actually had a section that focuses on the fans. I learned a lot from it, but what is also notable is that the fans feel like they're part of the movie, even if you weren't in the movie. You just feel like this whole movement is something that you were part of, which which uh, you know, brings up like for example the Old Bridge militia. I mean, I yeah. never knew that they existed, but it was so cool to see that, you know, this guy had all this land and if if the uh, you know a certain band couldn't play at a certain club, they'd go to his house and play. <laughs> that is totally insane. Yeah. And I'm sure you probably played there a number of times. Well we were part of uh again a group of people that
4: were the, the Obridge Militia were guys who who were not musicians, but they wanted to be a part of what was going on at that time, and so there's a whole big story on how Metallica stayed there for for, for six months, something like that. It yeah, the, the fan aspect of it, because like you say, they they uh, they're a part of it in the film, having a section and a section on the road and everything. It it's definitely uh, this film is possible because Rick is is an extremely thorough guy. All right, and.
3: We, we really could have done this film without the, the fans, essentially. You know, the, the, the fans basically, you know, when, when I, before I met Rat, before I met the web guy, Doug Sexton, who does the website, it was all me doing everything. And, you know, I went out onto the web there, and I basically asked fans to help. Send in your ticket stubs, send in your pictures, send in your stories. You know, let's, let's do this, but I, I need your help. And pretty much, you know, all throughout the, uh, uh, the making of the film, they helped. You know, the the photographers who helped were huge fans. Frank White, uh, I know. Frank White, you know, and and he's a professional photographer. But there are people that um, are are simply fans that sent in materials that, you know, their names are in the credits. They were a big, big part of it. You know, there weren't a lot of people outside of me and Rat that worked on this thing. So when you look at the credits, there were a lot of fans in there that submitted materials. And, you know, they were a big part of it uh, in terms of making it. And they're a big part of it when you, yeah, you do feel, I think, that if you're a fan, you watch this, this is my movie, this is my scene that's what I've heard people tell me over and over again thank you for making a movie about my scene about my life growing up as a thrash metal fan and that is so cool to hear that it, it's yeah. it's so cool
4: and, and it could not have happened without those contributions
3: yeah. right no I
0: wanted to ask you maybe you can fill in some of our younger listeners who weren't even alive when thrash music came about where ask, ask
4: the old guy? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> ask, I'm, I'm asking one of the founding fathers <laughs> okay, of of the up. of the genre. Th- thank you,
0: thank you. <laughs> where it came from? There was there was punk rock in the '70s. There was hard rock. There was even metal. But but where did where did this insane sound that became known as thrash metal actually come from?
4: Thrash metal came from the American kids reinterpreting the new wave of british heavy metal because the new wave of british heavy metal iron maiden saxon these bands that had stepped things up quite a bit as with american culture to this day we take everything to extremes and that's really what you know we were in our early 20s that's what we had had done at that point we used to live for the import section of the record stores um and then out of that became underground tape trading cassette trading of demos and everything but it was basically, you know, metal was ready to jump to another extreme level, and you know we were the guys that were capable, I guess, musically and just had the aggression as as people to make this, to to, to make this transference into this new style at that point. Uh, but it is very much from the new wave of British, British heavy metal. The other thing that in Get Thrashed that we. We couldn't, you see, Get Thrash is like a a tree, and it has a root, you know, and then there's branches, and you can't go into every leaf of every branch, you know, because there were uh, so many thrash bands by the end of the the scene, so to speak, in late 80s or whatever. So we tried to have, obviously, the strongest components uh, in the film, but there was like a gray area in 80, 81, 82 with Anvil, with Raven, Exciter, these kind of bands who were very, very important. They weren't quite thrash bands, but they certainly stepped up what traditional metal was at that point. So uh, it just basically, you know, came from that from that reinterpretation of the new British heavy metal and us trying to outdo each other. You know, who who's going to play double bass faster in the next song, and and have a chunkier sound, and
0: there you go. It's like a how, race. How huh? much did did hardcore and punk play into the influence when you were? young and and listening to bands
4: that ultimately is what changed it and and made it 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 took a curve at that point because the sod record in 85 when that came out and it was clearly a hardcore record with a metal sound with a very very heavy sound and so that was that was a turning point a lot of things changed at that at that time because they were playing so aggressively uh, harder than we were. We were maybe better musicians than some of the hardcore guys, but they admired the fact that we could play. So as we have a, a section of crossover in Get Thrash, it explains very well how the thinking was kind of exchanged between the two genres, and we borrowed from each other, and eventually when we all realized we can get along in the same club and we're you know, just going to have fun and not hurt each other because one guy's a skin and one guy's a long hair, that's, there you go, and that's what, what defined it, I guess, as, as thrash metal, you know, as that label...
2: Now, uh, as a, as another drummer, um, I'm curious what what were your influences in your drumming and being one of the first ever thrash drummers?
4: Um, I may be different than some of the other uh, drummers from the thrash era, uh, the early thrash era, because I, I studied jazz drumming uh, growing wow. up. I was traditionally trained, can read, and consequently taught lessons and things like that. But I grew up my my probably at the time my my biggest influence was Tommy Aldridge. He was an arena oh, rock drummer. Right. Certainly was Tommy Lee's influence. I mean without without question from the way his kid is set up to stick twirling and just, you know, very exaggerated playing and he was the first drummer that I remember being very much noticed. You know, he you uh, could from a distance he was still it wasn't this guy hiding and playing softly. So anyway, um I'm influenced more by that kind of, you know, Neil Peart uh, Tommy Aldridge and then i like I like a lot of like other stuff jazz fusion and whatnot but that's that 's me
2: wow that 's great i didn 't know that that you had that background in in jazz drumming because I mean that kind yeah. of stuff is really complex i mean it, yeah. uh, just me being a drummer, I could probably fake my way through a jazz <laughs> song, but anybody who knew what they were doing would say oh that 's like some rock guy trying to play jazz i can 't do it right
4: I think with most of the guys from from my era from the very earliest days of thrash uh listening to and appreciating other kinds of music, not necessarily playing it, but appreciating it, understanding it, made you a better player in the long run. Definitely. You know, it gave you more tools in your, in your tool bag to, uh, to work with, right? Cool. Well, thank you for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rick, growing up when you were a kid, what were some of your first memories of discovering thrash and, and hearing that that
3: sound that was definitely different for the first time. I mean, I I kind of grew up on ACDC, Sabbath, Priest, Maiden, and, you know, you just kind of take it to the next level, and I remember somebody, um, a friend of a friend, floating me a a mixtape cassette in in high school, and it had Possessed, and I think it had Overkill, Creator, and... Uh, nuclear assault hanging the pope i 'll never forget listening to that going oh my god i 'm never going to listen to this stuff. this is crazy <laughs> you know and of course, you know years later here i am doing a documentary, but that was the first introduction, and my first you know reaction was um oh my god this is this is too much it's just too much and i remember another time when uh, i was about to go out i only had money to enough money to buy one record and i said uh you know to my friend you know a little older had a little bit more money more money than me i said should i go out and buy uh, metallica kill 'em all or or wasp uh you know the first wasp album he <laughs> said you should buy the first wasp album so that 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 delayed my metallica purchase by about 2 months uh before i went back and actually was able to buy it so <laughs>
2: Well, I think it's funny because Sully from Godsmack said the same thing when he yeah. first heard Thrash. He was like, "This sucks," but then, like, uh, you know, like a couple of weeks later, he was like, "This is the greatest thing I had he's the ever same
3: heard, but... reaction as as Sully did from Godsmack, and um, you know, I, I think that's a really that's a great line because it, it absolutely summed up where I was when I first heard Thrash.
4: Yeah, and once you could get past in those early days, a lot of the people listening to it and hearing how fast and heavy it was. They didn't know what to make of it, but once you gave it a chance and you realized there's really some, some good songwriting behind all this. There, there's structure, uh, a guy like James Hetfield who can really, really sing very well. He's got such power and, and, and a gruff to his voice, but the guy had a melody line. That, that's the one component that ended up being, over the years, removed from thrash metal, is the melodic, any, any sort of melody whatsoever, especially vocal-wise and and really kind of that's where it, it stands today because that's the biggest change is in my opinion vocally. Uh what's going on of course the drop tuning, you know, that's a given now but
2: so it, people were talking about uh Joey Belladonna being one of the the melodic singers of mm. thrash as well. Yeah. And but you're right like nowadays uh, you know uh, that's not present currently.
4: No, in a lot I of mean, bands but. no because now I I think what it is because I talked before about the extremity and everything being an extreme and metal has always been an extreme. When a singer screams, that's his extreme point. That's his best tool in his tool bag. So, right. And and so the double bass playing like, "Well, let's do double bass every song. Let's do it real fast and let me scream every lyric." So, the, you kind of reach like, a wall.
2: Yeah, you can't go Where any do you go? higher than that. You're that's it's it. almost cooler to not have double bass all throughout every song and not have screaming because then you have you
3: know peaks and, and Peaks valleys, and valleys right. and
4: yeah. dynamics and right. now it's one thing it's heavy it's just, fast there's t- right, the time. Still That's why dynamics. I think
3: when you get guys that can you know scream and do the heavy stuff as well as sing something like a Corey Taylor from Slipknot right. and Stone Sour I mean that is amazing when you hear that for somebody to be able to seamlessly go between the different styles of vocals and, and in Corey Taylor's case different styles of music you know seamlessly that, that I think is the coolest thing. Yeah, you can sing heavy and gruff and death right. metal or cookie monster vocals all the time. And, you know, a lot of that stuff I actually, you know, I, I do like and I appreciate it. But, you know, I find when there's, you know, more variety in the singing, I like it a lot more.
0: There's so many great people interviewed in, <clears throat> in the documentary. Who was the hardest person Lockdown. Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine, really? Yeah, you don't have I to, to thought, finish. Okay.
3: Uh, simply because if, if uh, fans of Megadeth remember, there was a time where Dave had injured his arm and he wasn't in Megadeth. There was no Megadeth. They were kind of in limbo. Yeah, and that was right around the time when we were trying to you know, get this documentary going and I was trying to find Dave and I couldn't. And until he basically came back um, and put an album out, and at the time he was on Sanctuary Records, then that was the point where I can actually. You know, grab a hold of somebody who had you know uh, you know a phone number of Dave Mustaine that can actually deliver him to be interviewed. Um, he was the hardest one, no doubt. You know, he was one of the most important one. He's one of the best guys in the film. So when people say how come it took so long? Well, there, there were certain guys we had to get, and I don't think I interviewed Dave until like 2005. Um so it w- it was it was pretty far along until we uh, got a hold of him. His
2: interview was one of my favorites and uh, one of the things that I I like that he said is it, he said, you know, I'm not going to try to you know, when I'm putting together Megadeth, I'm not going to try to, you know, outdo Metallica or be better because I was the best thing in the band. He said something like right, that. I can't exactly. remember word for word. Yep. But then the other thing that he said is that he said that he had influenced like guitar players in Slayer, so his sound influenced Carrie King, uh,
3: uh, James. Yeah, he, he takes a lot of credit. He yeah. has no problems with that you know, the interesting thing <laughs> is, is, is that, you know, right, along those line. lines, we, we were at the U.K. Uh, screening, which actually was the premiere of the film at the Raindance Film Festival, and Malcolm Dome, you know, right, famous right. journalist From was there. there. And, and, and at every film festival, those lines get kind of chuckles. But I always remember Malcolm afterwards at a club we went to saying, you know what, everybody was laughing about Dave saying that but it's fucking it's true. true. It's true, right. It's you true, know? right. I mean, and that was pretty, that hit that hit home, you know, because even I, you know, took it, you know, as, okay, there's Dave being Dave, but until Malcolm said that, it, that's what it yeah. really set in as these, um, you know, these revered uh, journalists that are saying, you know what, they might be laughing, but they're, Dave's right. Right, he is.
4: Yeah, because with any ego, you know what, it's justifiable if you can back it up, and he, right. he, and can, he can do it. He can back it up. Yeah. There were a few things that he said that we didn't put in the final cut, Wow. That, that are along those same lines. Are he, he right with the... Yeah, I mean, maybe someday know, that'll come out on its separate yeah, like. outtakes, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Outtakes. I mean, yeah. I mean ul- ul-
3: ultimately, <laughs> if it applied to the film and it made sense to put it in there, it would have been in there. But you know, if it's extraneous stuff, we always looked at it as a train going down the track. And if it if it were just putting it in there to be salacious or to create controversy, it really didn't make any sense. We wanted to tell a story that flowed right. from A to B to C nicely, and then you can also follow. So to just put like Dave lines in there that maybe you know are inflammatory or egotistical. It just would have been for the sake of putting it in there, rather than helping tell a story, which is what right. the ultimate goal was.
2: I have a question for you
3: guys um, about who had the first commercial success
2: with Thrash, for example, on MTV, and was it Peace Cells? Did, did that was, in your opinion, was that more successful than you know that came before some of the more successful Metallica videos?
3: Yeah, if you, I guess if you're talking about successful Thrash videos. You, It it might have been P-cells because that would have come before one, which was Metallica's first video. Um, Around 86, you would have also probably had Indians from Anthrax, which was a big, big video for them. Those might have been the, the, the two biggest videos that I can remember. Um, I didn't have MTV at the time, so this is oh, okay. years later. Wow. Me looking back at at some of the videos that you know MTV had in their in their library, and I think those are the two that would have yeah, been I, the biggest I couldn't ones. I
4: was always out. When, <laughs> when, when, that, was the, when, when that was when, on, when
3: you think of the big bands, I mean, you think of immediately the, the the big four: Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. And certainly, Anthrax with Indians and Megadeth P Cells. Those are the two videos I remember from the earliest thrash videos. It's just interesting that like Metallica the the
2: one video didn't come out until after the Megadeth video was successful. So that was kind of just like a, a you know, I kind of always felt bad for Mustaine because of what happened with Metallica. But, you know, he really saw success, commercial success, like
0: on MTV first. Well, I mean, with Metallica, too, there was that whole, I remember for years and years they would say, we're never going to do a video. We'll never do a video. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. When you look back on it now, and, and and Rat, you might be able to comment on that. Was that a marketing ploy in itself? Like we're not going to do a video, and that made the hardcore fans even more excited, or made people more curious about them, and it kept gave them more street cred.
4: Well, if you think about it, look at uh, Chinese Democracy is supposed to have come out ten years ago. Right. Maybe maybe that will never actually come out. Right, it'll be the biggest album that never was. So the hype. Sure, the hype is going to sell something, even if there's not a product behind it at some point, you know, if you think about it. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, they could say all those things, but at the end of the day, and, you know, cash is king, and so...
3: <laughs> at that time yeah maybe just a marketing i I definitely think it helped fuel fuel the fire you know me as a fan hearing them say that it was kind of like rallying against the man at that point you know because you know they were the band and they were standing up against the establishment not just mtv but even radio wasn't playing them at the time either so the fact that you know your band that you found you discovered and there's a select group of people that like them you on a certain level you don't want other people to discover your special band so it was cool because
0: i remember when when the video came out for one and, and justice was out and i remember walking into a macy's at quaker bridge mall in, in trenton new jersey and there they were in macy's the metallica t-shirts and i was yeah. so upset because i was like you know these this guys it's the on a video and now look at macy's is selling metallica t-shirts and and it it in a way, you know, it, it never it was never as exciting for me it, it after a, yeah. that point. You know. Because
4: something that's sacred to you and special to just you and you know you understand it, all of a sudden the world, you know, is trying to experience it. And and they don't necessarily get it. It's kinda like, you know, wearing the Misfits Fiend shirt. You know, I saw the Misfits back at that time period and, and I there's a place for them in my heart, but it's a you know, it becomes something that just gets mainstream and it's just uh,
3: like Coca Cola is now called Coke. It just becomes, you know, one generic brand. And then, certain, the, know, the,
0: even the, 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 the punk stuff, especially the misfits, the Ramones. We were I just going
4: to, you know. know, my son here is wearing a Dead Boys t shirt and huge Dead Boys fans. And a Dead Sonic Reducer, right? Steven showed up on Tony Hawk Pro Skater, you know, and all of a sudden he was really, really mad. It's not sacred anymore. You know, it's not a special thing. Now, every kid who has a skateboard is going to be listening to the Dead Boys. Right. It doesn't work. <laughs> they don't get it. They don't get it. <laughs> uh, on,
2: on that tip, it, it really ties into something Rick said too, and I didn't know that anybody other than my, you know, group of a couple of friends in small town Pennsylvania used this terminology. But it was discovering bands, uh, and uh, sure. the only band I ever discovered was Metal Church. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's a big discovery, though. Yeah, great, great band. band but uh, I was, we almost had to be. You had to be deemed cool enough by. The group of friends to be able to go purchase a specific album. I remember one time I bought <laughs> an album, and the the group didn't deem me cool enough, and people were hanging up the phone on me because they said, "Oh, we didn't authorize you to go buy that Metallica record." Yeah, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I, it was uh, totally like that at my school too. You absolutely. Know? I still remember sitting at lunch and I can vividly remember uh, the First Testament album, you know, the Legacy versus Exodus, uh, Pleasures of the Flesh, their second album. They both come out around the same time. And I remember I had discovered Testament and I was like, oh, my God, you guys got to check out this album. We're like, oh, the Pleasures of the Flesh is awesome. You know, and there was this whole argument about which one was better, you know, but it was always a constant pushing with my friends at least to discover new bands you know and you'd bring them back and again yeah you'd see if your friends dug what you were bringing back or they'd reject them and you know you'd you'd have that uh snow white was another band i remember bringing back to them and saying look at this band this crunchy guitar and they're like ah we don't like them you know <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: well guys a few more questions but i just want to remind the listeners that they should all be checking out this documentary. It's it's the definitive history of Thrash Metal. Get Thrash, the story of Thrash Metal, out September 16th, just a few days from now. And you can purchase it online, too, right? GetThrash.com?
3: Yeah, GetThrash.com. There's a link. Um, uh, and Lightyear.com is actually where they're selling, um, you know, doing the pre-sales. So that's a good place to buy it because Lightyear was pr- pretty much one of the only labels that would take a chance and sign us essentially and give us a deal and um you know so we're thankful to them for putting this out
0: now you kind of hinted at this earlier but i can imagine like there were many legal issues i mean publishing and and uh, and (laughs) yeah just the rights and clearances when I, i just knowing from having worked in in television on music it had to be a nightmare
3: yeah, it was an absolute nightmare, and uh, I, I can I cannot imagine ever doing something like this again. The way that it was <laughs> done, which is very DIY and independent of any big, you know, corporate sponsorship or support. Um, yeah, I mean, to use any of the music in the film by the big bands, but the music we love and we know, you have to not only go to the band, but you have to go to the record label to get their permission. Um, I mean, you know, Exodus publishing. publishing, publishing. Yeah, and and a lot of times it's not up to the band. Most fans think, oh yeah, Exodus would you know be would dying to right? Yeah, know. Exodus they are dying to be in this, and they would love for us to use all of their music, but they don't have uh, necessarily the rights to say, yeah, go ahead use our music. You know, Sony or whoever owns the publishing, they have the final say. And as uh you know as much as we want to think that um, you know it would uh, help them to sell albums by having their music in the documentary, sometimes it doesn 't work out quite that way when you 're talking to some of the big record labels, especially on the budget that we had you know this is an independent film, so we really um I really had to go and get the bands directly involved to get permission to use this music. And even at that, it was difficult. So literally, it was calling Metallica's management and t- explaining to them, we need your help to come in and let us use this music. And calling, you know, Millay from Creator or Gary Holt from Exodus. Literally, I would have to call them to get them involved to push the process forward. Megadeth, Anthrax, basically all of them. The smaller labels weren't, were not were really cool. And I think there's a definitely a fine line between like a metal blade and... Uh, Universal, Um, everybody was cool in the end, but there's definitely a lot more work with Universal because of the corporate structure as opposed to like Metal Blade, where you can get Brian Slagle on the phone. Right.
2: Now, is this something called a favored nations clause that you guys had to deal with where, for example, you would have to pay a band that Metal Blade is handling the same amount that... You're paying the universal. I'm not sure yeah, how that works, that, but that, you yeah. just yeah. summed that, it is up. Is that that's it exactly
3: is. how it works. So, if one band or one label comes in and says, We want more than everybody else, you know, that, that's a problem. you got to pay because everybody. Because then everybody else amount. has to get that rate, and, and your right. whole budget goes up. And we had issues that came close to being big problems and having to lose stuff from the film, but in the end, Thankfully, it all worked out. You know, it it, it worked out um, thanks to the bands, and you know, honestly, thanks to some of the uh, the MTV friends that I've met over the years that have gone on to work in other places. Um, I can't imagine anybody doing this film without yeah. contacts and connections, because right. it was a lot of work on that end to get it done.
4: I mean, Rick and I would talk all the time during this whole the years that it took to put this together. And, and the reason why it's coming out in 2008 is because most of that time wasn't spent on really on editing so much as it was that maybe have been ten percent of the time, and the rest is on administrative legal stuff that has to be done. Right. No one wants to do it, but we have to. We we have houses and families that we do not want to lose. You, you yeah. know. <laughs> and even though g- these guys are all our friends and everything, you know, right. it's again, it's not Gary it's, Holt's decision.
2: It's it's, it's the label or, Sony, yeah, or like, yeah whoever. Yeah. And then I mean, there's not only do you have the audio portion of it, but then there's the video footage. Yeah. yeah. That yeah, is, <laughs> is is equally insane with clearing. And I know, Red, yeah. some of that was your personal footage, right? Some of it,
4: mm-hmm. yeah. Not 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 a great deal of it, but someone like Walter Morgan is a perfect example who shot stuff of Exodus and suicidal during the day, and he was kind enough to donate it to the film, uh, clear of any royalty payment or anything like oh, that, however, the band still do have to approve. What yeah, exactly, wow. we, we, uh, Walter Morgan
3: busy. is probably the best example of uh, of a fan and now, now a friend who we met who actually was uh, in the Bay Area at the time, this whole scene was exploding, and he shot you know, a lot of great, great footage. Most of the footage in the film is actually his. And, um, you know, I had kind of come across him through working with Testament. He's actually uh, fr- good friends with Chuck Billy, and he's roadied for the band, known them forever. And, um, and he's a perfect example of a fan who said, I want to help. I want this story to be told in the right way. And I have these gems, these jewels that nobody's ever seen before. And I would love for you to, to use them. And Walter's name is, you know, at the beginning of the film. Like, he was invaluable to this process and to the video footage which we again went back then to the bands and said are you cool with us using this and you know they all were cool. We
0: have we have so many kids who have the big rock star dream that they're they're going to get rich and famous and make millions of dollars and one of the things that I thought was interesting about get thrashed is that's really the exception for for people who who are musicians and love music and it, and there's so few people even big bands that we know of that never really made a lot of money at this and it, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on it rat and and
4: um actually uh that's the next film I'm working on believe it or not is what happens to two people when they get into the entertainment business it's very disillusional from both ends from the artist end who, who is trying to do something that they're uh, a talent maybe they're born with to the record company or uh, someone in the industry who's trying to develop that and consequently um profit off of that um it's a very very difficult business it's it's something it's it's a it's a deep subject and something that's never going to actually have a resolution to it um because you know you have as you guys well know too you know what just even being in a band with other musicians trying to survive just with the members and their little personal differences can be the end of a group before you even experienced what the industry may do for you or not you know it's It's (laughs) it's <laughs> the hardest business in the world in my mind. Yeah, it really is.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And tell us about some of your other films.
4: Uh, well, I have another film out that I released probably a year ago. It's called Born in the Basement. It's a w- kind of a, it, it is my autobiography. Um, it tells the story of what I experienced in those very early days of putting together, which was overkill, uh, a band during that time period in the tri state area amongst the cover bands in New Jersey. And the uh, the the culture kind of uh, changes that were going on between the disco scene fading out and, and new wave and punk and so also everyone was just kind of tail spinning, and so um, it's just something that maybe in a, in a way sort of a uh, a compliment uh, so to speak to get thrashed, um, much more of a personal kind of journey. But um, that's something that that I that I have out at uh, ratskates.com, you can get that, or it is in some retailers, too.
0: Cool. And we will link that through today's show notes.
2: And, Rat, thank you for putting the comment on my MySpace page. I was psyched when I saw that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank you. Actually, thank you, Stephen. Oh, very mm-hmm. cool. Yes. In the same line as Mark's original question, John Connolly, I believe it was, was saying how you go out on tour for three months, and then you got to come back, and you got to get a job for two months, and then you go back on tour, and then when you try to get another job, they're saying... Well, how long did you work at your last job? And he's like, "Well, two months." So it's just it's and Richard Christie said the same thing when when we had him on talking metal is that you know, it's really just hard to make a living even if you're in a band that's touring. I always thought that if you had an album out at the the record store that you were like all rich and, and it was mm-hmm. like a big deal, but I found out now that that's not the way it is. No, I mean and it's really hard. But. Show
4: business has always been about the smoke and mirrors and putting that that entertainer up on a pedestal. And sometimes you will get the people that have been through an awful lot that will share with you really what, what life is about. You know what? You may view me a certain way. You hear my records, see me on stage. But I have a day job to make ends meet. A fantastic, one of the best movies, that I, movies I've ever seen is the story of uh, the Anvil movie. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen I've that. I have not seen it yet. See it. It's phenomenal. Uh, it's a documentary slash movie it's funny spinal tapish doesn't mean to be but it's incredible and it's very humbling because related to what we're talking about lips you know you view them a certain way as okay anvil's not the biggest selling band ever but you know is he able to make a living when you see this movie wow does it put things in perspective how hard it is yeah, very humbling. Definitely,
0: yeah. Great well, movie. thank you so much for joining us guys and again the website skit Ratskates.com. Ratskates dot com. Dot com. We will have both of those linked. Pick up this D V D. You will enjoy it. It is one of the really only historical lessons, history lessons, if you will, on thrash in my opinion that's uh, you know out there right
3: yeah it definitely is and when people ask me you know is it um, you know is it for thrash fans is it for mainstream I love to say that uh, on the same level as uh, some kind of monster if you were a Metallica fan you'd love it if you were a mainstream fan you'd really like it I think get thrash is, is the same way if you're a thrash fan you've got almost 200 minutes of like thrash band footage, history and whatnot that you will just, you know, I think, eat up. And if you're a non-thrash fan uh, as well, there's a lot to be taken out of this. You know, again, from the stuff on the road, to the fans, to the culture, to the bands, and why this was important. If you're a music fan, you, know, you should check it out because you know, there's a lot of good music here that you may have missed. Definitely. I, I think it actually should be required viewing
2: for everybody who's in the media industry <laughs> and fans alike.
3: Agreed. Oh, that's awesome, John. We're gonna use that on our website. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Very good. Let's
3: end today's interview with
0: some classic Overkill Rotten to the Core. Any memories? Nineteen eighty four? The four song you know E P
4: yeah, you know, all, all just fun memories uh, because those early days before you you had the pressures of of uh, selling a certain amount of units and and touring, which is why I left the business at that time. It was all about fun. So to sum it up, it was a fun time, and the songs were written with just you know four guys just having clear heads and just thinking about you know what, just all about headbanging, going out, shredding, having having fun, and that that's that's the memory. It's, I'm very fortunate and blessed to have experienced, really.
2: Very good. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Rat. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Again, check out getthrash.com. Here is a little old-school overkill going back to
1: 1984. I have got a secret hidden behind my eyes. A violation, tragedy, a violence hate, i